Well, hey, welcome to Regeneration. My name is Kyle, um, and in a minute you're going to take a look at that video, but not quite yet. Uh, if inside that bulletin that you received on your way in, that program is a whole bunch of info about what's going on in the life of Regeneration. Regeneration is a fairly new faith community dedicated to the idea that there's a real Jesus who wants to intersect with our real lives, and when we take time to let him integrate with that, something happens. Uh, not overnight, not instantaneously, but something happens. And so we're trying to invite all people to know what that is when we say something happens. Uh, so we do a lot. We serve. We're doing this thing called Operation Christmas Child. But my fear is that it's easy for us to forget why we're here. Um, we've been doing this church thing for like 14 months now. Last month was our first birthday. And the, the thing that happens when we're not careful is we forget why we're here. We forget the point. We forget the power. We forget the energy. And so I wanted to remind us of that tonight. So take a look at this. When we're, when we're not careful, when we're not intentional, that which is at the very heart of who we are falls off. Not because we want it to, not because we don't care, but because we get lost in the let's pack a shoebox and send it around the world and let's do the setup and the teardown and all of these things. The point is that regeneration exists to invite people to give church another chance because when we give church another chance, we get a fresh look at Jesus. Tonight we're in the midst of uh, a new series uh, where we teach in kind of packaged ideas and so we're going to be doing that tonight. And so uh, if you want to join me, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5. There are Bibles underneath the seat, and you want to look for the blue one. There's red ones, but grab a blue one. And uh, Galatians, if you've been with us through this series in Ephesians, it's right there. It'll be right around page probably 700, if I had to guess. Be amazed that I know that. Let me pray one more time. I know we already have, but let me pray and we'll dive in. Father, I uh, just ask that as we come into your presence tonight, you would just open our eyes to see in a fresh way this gospel, this good news, this message that you have a heart to intersect our lives in real and deep ways. Father, I pray for each one here that we would see you just a little more clearly tonight. We pray all of this in the name of the one who walks with us. His name is Jesus. Amen. A.W. Tozer once wrote that the most important thing about any person, the most important thing about us is what comes to mind when we think of God. Think about that for a minute. What comes to your mind when you think of God? Is he someone that we've relegated to the very corners of our lives because he doesn't have much to say? Is he someone that we know well? Is he someone that we're doing our best to ignore? If the most important thing about us is what comes to mind when we think about God, then the most important question that we can answer is this, what does Jesus want with me? I mean, what, what is Jesus really after? You know, if you've been in the church a long time, it's really easy to lose 
sight of this question. It's easy to become so busy for Jesus, so active in doing all of these things that we begin to forget why we were doing them in the first place. We were doing all of these things for Jesus, and in fact, we were doing all of these things with Jesus, but somewhere along the line, in between the meetings and the serving and the driving here and the going there and the making for the chicken soup for the person that's sick again, somewhere in all of that, you lose the very reason that you did it in the first place, and Jesus, who was at the very foreground of the picture at one point, just fades into the back. This is an easy question to lose sight of, even if maybe there was a time in your life that you were at church and maybe have kind of fallen off the wagon a little bit. Because you start to think to yourself that you can encounter Jesus outside the walls of a church, which is true. And yet in the absence of that community, in the absence of those relationships, in the absence of the continual and consistent teaching of God's word, you start to lose sight of this question. You don't know what Jesus wants from you anymore, you know what you want from Jesus. And maybe you're new to church. Maybe the whole Christianity thing is, is new to you. It's easy to lose sight of this question because other questions sound smarter, in fact, even sexier than this question. Questions like, is Jesus really the Son of God? Questions like, is the Bible true and how do I know? Questions like, can I believe that the miracles of Jesus are reported accurately? These questions distract us from the very first question that we need to answer when it comes to Jesus, which is, what does Jesus want with me? What's he after? What's the point? There's a tremendous danger to letting the very point of the way of Jesus fade into the background regardless of where you are in your faith journey because the moment that happens, it all falls apart. The moment the very person it's about leaves the picture is when there isn't a picture anymore. And so Paul in Galatians 5 is trying to help a church there answer this very question. What is Jesus about? What is he doing all of this for? In Galatians 5, 16 through 18, which is the verses we'll look at together tonight, Paul is trying to help this church understand the answer to that question. We're going to spend three weeks uh, in Galatians 5, the last half of the chapter. And if you think that that means for a shorter sermon, you have no clue what a graduate of the Moody Bible Institute can do with 10 verses of the Bible. And so we're going to dive into these verses over the next few weeks, answering this question, what does Jesus want with me? Let, me? let me show you what Paul writes. Oh, hey. Huh. We're trying a new clicker out tonight, people, so get ready. But I do have a laser pointer, so behave. Paul says, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you're not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. In these verses, Paul wants to unpack for us this idea that Jesus wants this for us. This is what Jesus is after. Jesus is after consistent encounters with him. He wants us to encounter him. He he wants to change us. He wants us to bear fruit. Paul says here that we should let the Holy Spirit guide our lives. My wife uses a piece of software at her work called Constant Contact. They upload a whole bunch of cell phone numbers and emails into it, and then they can blast out any number of 
donors and people interested in the organization that she works for so they can remain in constant contact. I like that name because it gets at the heart of what God wants for us. God wants us to have constant contact with him, which is what this idea of let the spirit guide your lives is all about. The NIV renders it walk by the Spirit, which I think maybe is a little more helpful. Walk becomes a word in the New Testament, not just for like going from A to B, but this idea of the way that we live and move and have our being, our eating and breathing and drinking and sleeping and going to work and hanging out with our people lives, that all of that packed into it should be done in the presence and power of the Spirit of God. And this can only happen when we live life in a constant awareness of and contact with God. We need to be in touch with him all of the time. Paul has a command where he says, pray without ceasing, which for most of my young life was rather confusing because I wasn't exactly sure how to go through my life like on my knees, like my head bowed, my eyes closed, and my hands folded like my grandma taught me to. It gets very confusing. And yet, when we think of prayer not as, here's this paragraph that I say in my head to God, and here's some random silence that I guess I'm supposed to observe most of the time, when we think of prayer as constant contact with God, something changes. We need constant contact with God because without it, Jesus becomes domesticated. We make Jesus toothless. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, written by C.S. Lewis, one of the characters speaks of Aslan, who's a lion. He's the Christ type in the, in the story. He says he's not a safe lion, but he's good. I think we would rather, we don't really care too much about the goodness as long as Jesus were to be safe. And can I tell you, Jesus isn't safe. He's not toothless. He's not domesticated. He's not easy. And he's not this way. He's not safe because safety doesn't change us. And that's his heart. Jesus' heart is to, is to change us. Paul writes this really amazing paragraph. He says, then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants you to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. You're not free to carry out your good intentions, but when you're directed by the Spirit, you're not under obligation to the law of Moses. The goal of the gospel, Jesus' aim in your life is to change you. Jesus' aim is to move you from what Paul says is one form of glory to another. Upon stepping across the line of faith, a war begins inside of you, and your lesser nature, your sinful nature, is put on the losing side, but every day you're constantly experiencing your better intentions competing against your lesser ones, which was often summarized in those cartoons where the angel's on one shoulder and the devil's on another. Our desires to control, to be anxious, to be fearful, to overindulge, to be over-controlling, to be addicted to this, to quell our inner darkness with something other than Jesus is constantly at war with the better desires implanted on us by the Spirit. And his desire is for those instincts from the Spirit that they eventually over time totally take over. 
And maybe we experience moments, or maybe if we're lucky, like five moments consecutively of this. But most of the time, it's a back and forth and back and forth. But this idea that Jesus wants to transform us means two things. First, it means that Jesus loves you tremendously, but he loves you way too much to leave you as you are. And I know that sounds corny, but it's true, that Jesus knowing you and loving you doesn't want you to stay the same way. It's cliche, but a cliche is only a truth that we've grown tired of hearing. And I think what helps me understand it a little better is when I watch these HGTV shows. You see, we got cable in our house now, so it's like a party all the time. And a party in the tenant house is watching HGTV, and there's this couple that goes and they like help their friends buy houses, and then they flip them. And and we were watching this show, and this couple takes their friends who are looking to buy a house into a house that easily was the scene of like a murder and a horror movie, you know? I mean, you could tell that it had a stench even though my TV didn't have smell-o-vision, like you just knew. And there were like stains on the walls and holes in the ceiling, and this couple walks in and they say, we love this house. Well, what's there to love? Except that over time and in a very nice 20-minute montage with music and lots of laughter, were that every home improvement project that simple, uh, they turn it into something really tremendously beautiful because they see beyond the present vision of the house to the long term. Jesus doesn't see who we are. He sees who we're becoming. And so in seeing us that way, he knows that if we renovate the bathroom of our heart and put it in new, we can yank out the selfishness and put in humility. Jesus knows far beyond us and far beyond our way to know that we can renovate the downstairs dinginess that is our anger and replace it with a trust in other people that doesn't seek to control them. That This is what Jesus is about. But it also means this, if you belong to Jesus, and not everybody that's a part of this community is that case, and, is that, and that's, that's fine, but here's what you need to know. If you do belong to Jesus, you should be able to tell me right now how you are different today than you were one year ago. Hear me on this. If you belong to Jesus, you should be able to tell me how you're different today than you were a year ago. And if you can't, you need to go home and do some homework. I had a mentor once tell me that the person you are now, the person you were five years ago, excuse me, should seem like a fictional character because of how different you are. If you can't look at your life honestly and say, this tendency has changed, I address this better, I handle this issue better, For me, honestly, it's that when caught off guard by something, I don't snap at someone. Measurably, I am somehow a little calmer than I was a year ago. Not much. And just to say this, because we're a fairly multi-generational community, if you're over 60, we do this thing where we say, um, well, I am such and such an age, and so I don't have to apologize for what I say or what I do because I've earned the right to do it. I've earned the right to be a jerk. And we all laugh when someone says that. Can I tell you, Jesus doesn't laugh at that joke because Jesus doesn't find our excuses to say the same funny. Jesus doesn't find our desire to never move amusing because that's not what he's about. Because what Jesus wants is for us to bear fruit. Jesus wants over our lifetime to bear more and more fruit. Paul calls this the fruit of the Spirit. We'll see it in a second. The outcome of the Spirit at work within you is real and measurable change in the way you live your life, the way you engage with other people. Something shifts over time. And Paul puts it like this in Ephesians 5, 
22, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is an outcome of God working in your life that these things become more and more evident and other things go away. I've been going to the gym now for six months, and one of the outcomes of that is I weigh 13 pounds less than I did in July. And so similarly, over time, there should be, frankly, even measurable outcomes based on these things. And so each week of the next three weeks, we're going to pick apart three of these fruits of the Spirit because these are the fruits that Jesus wants us to bear in our lives. And so the first one is love. The New Testament makes a big deal out of love, so much so that Jesus says it is the only accurate measure of, of the church, that Christians are only really accurately known by their love. Well, let me tell you what the problem with that is. When you, when you interview, you know, roughly 18 to 30-somethings outside the church, about 90% of them think that we're judgmental, about 88% of them think we're hypocritical, about 86% of them think that we're dumb, about 84% of them think that we're angry, about 80% of them think that they just want nothing to do with us because we've gone to a place of total irrelevance. Nowhere on the top of the list does, on the list does an 18 to 30-year-old outside the church say, oh, they're pretty loving people. They're not bad. It's not the vision that people have of us. I don't know if you know this, but the number two reason in Trumbull County for not participating in church is that the church is too conflicted. There's too much anger, there's too much conflict, there's too much infighting, I don't want to mess with that because most people think my Thanksgiving dinners look that way, why would I want to do it every Sunday? We have to remember that loving someone is not a feeling, it's an action. But as I used to remind my youth group kids, it's also a feeling. And the funny thing about love is that we can do exactly what my mother taught me, which is fake it till you make it. C.S. Lewis says, don't worry about whether or not you actually love someone. Just act as if you love someone and you'll wake up one day and you'll find that you miraculously feel affection towards them, which frankly is disgusting because then there's this person that I really couldn't tolerate before that I now have affection for. Dang it. But we have to remember, too, that the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. It's deciding that a person isn't even worth your anger. It's deciding that a person isn't even worth your annoyance. You just don't care. And so here's the question. If you want to write this down for further reflection, here it is. Who do I feel indifferent towards? Where is there indifference in my life? Because the way of Jesus is that there is a passionate, intentional, purposeful love. And that this is, mo- this is shown in self-sacrifice and care and, and just a relentless seeking the good of the other. That's what Jesus does in our lives and that's what he wants us to show others. Love. The other fruit is Joy. Paul in Philippians says, be full of joy in the Lord. I'll say it again, rejoice. I don't know if you know this, but Paul in Philippians is writing that from prison. And I'm not talking like some Martha Stewart, minimum security, we have cooking classes in the afternoons prison. I'm talking about some hole in the ground that smells and is nasty and wet and dark that Paul is hollering up through the hole in the ground so that some guy up there can write down Philippians for him. And he says, rejoice. Joy is the unshakable gladness of the people of God, and it's different than happiness in that its roots go deeper. Joy's roots go down so deep that even in cancer, 
there's joy. Even in, even in tremendous conflict in your family or, gosh, while we're talking about it, your church, there's joy. That even in tremendous hardship in your marriage or in parenting or in grandparenting or in whatever work you do, that there is something about you that says, I won't be entirely brought down by this. Oh, I might be sad for a minute. I might be sad for many minutes. And yet within me, I know the outcome. Somebody told me this illustration for this this morning, which I thought was perfectly nerdy. I don't know if you've seen Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, but one of the good guys, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, is fighting Darth Vader, the bad guy. And while they're fighting, Obi-Wan just puts down his sword and he says, if you strike me down, I will become greater than you could possibly imagine. And he has joy in this moment, somebody pointed out to me, because he sees the whole picture. We only have joy because we see the whole picture. That the people of Jesus are unveiled to this idea that it's all going to be okay. In the longest of long runs, it's all going to be fine. Which doesn't always mean that our circumstances magically get better, but that in them we can have joy. Now, the problem with joy is that we can let someone or something steal it. What steals my joy is when I'm doing something that I'm passionate about and somebody gets up in my face and assumes that I have motives that I don't really have. That steals my joy. It steals my joy when I'm working really, really hard and someone thinks I'm not working at all. It steals my joy when things like that happen. What steals your joy? What removes even that gladness that says, even though this sucks, I'm kind of okay? I mean, what do you let steal your joy? That's the question. Over time, these things, love and joy, should grow in us so that, ideally, time proves that we become more joyful. The last one is peace. It says that the outcome of the Spirit working in our lives is that we become more peaceful, which, according to Paul in Colossians 3, has an inward and outward, perhaps a passive and, acid, passive and active dimension to it. The passive being when Paul says, let the peace of Christ, that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. That in the midst of anxiety and fear, we still have a sense of that idea that comes from joy, that it's going to be okay. That something passively allows us just to rest, allows us to breathe, allows us to hold on for just a minute. But out of that peace, which neutralizes our anxiety, which neutralizes our frustration, which neutralizes our fear, there's also an active kind of peace that we are called to be living in peace. There's really two kinds of people in the world. There's peacemakers and there's peace breakers. Seems like every 16-year-old girl I ever met was a peace breaker, but that might just be me. I think they grow out of it. Okay, laughter would have been good there, but we'll just add it in as a laugh track is what we'll do. If you're a person who stirs up strife or drama or conflict or gossip or anger or just general division among people, the Bible tells me to have nothing to do with you. That the cootie protocol go into full effect. That I stay as far away from you as possible. That I don't give an ear to it. That I don't listen to it. And I don't care if this is your best friend, your sister, your boss, a coworker. When that person is in your life, you have nothing to do with them. You do not even give them a moment to start 
Some peacebreakers use Facebook to get the job done because they just stir up drama there with every post. And thank God that there's this button that says unfollow. Some people use their small group or their Bible study or their church to stir up strife because maybe they can't have power at work and they can't have power at home. But I'll tell you what, Christians, that's a whole bunch of just nice people that are imprisoned by their niceness. So let me take advantage of that. Which, by the way, these are the people that keep me up all night. doesn't matter where, but if a person in your life is stirring up division or making you doubt leadership or gossiping or slandering others to you, you have to do nothing, you want to have nothing to do with them. Not least because if people, if someone will talk about other people to you, they're more than happy to talk about you to other people. Instead, we're called to neutralize conflict. We're called to not participate in gossip, to deny slander, to bring unity, to focus on what brings, frankly, people together, not creates in them further distrust. That is what the fruit of the spirit of peace is. Listen to these words in Matthew 7, 15 through 20. As I've been studying this text, I keep going back to Matthew 7. So we'll see another part of it next week and the week after. But Jesus says in these words in Matthew 7, beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No. A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, I say, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, you can identify people by their actions. Regen, what kind of fruit are you bearing? Is it good fruit or is it bad fruit? And let me just get down to it and tip my hand on next week. If all that you're bearing in your life is bad fruit or there's no good fruit growing at all, the absence of good fruit in your life indicates the absence of something or perhaps even better, someone else. From a good tree comes good fruit. I mean, what kind of fruit are you producing? I mean, is it that nasty stuff at the bottom of the box at Aldi, or is it the stuff on the top at Giant Eagle? This is what I'm asking. What I want to know is what evidence is there for the people around you that you know and love Jesus? And can I just be honest with you? This, I don't need you to invite a million people to regen. That'd be nice. I don't need you to share the four spiritual laws with every person you ever encounter so that they'll come to our church, here's what I need you to do. I need you to bear good fruit. Jesus needs you to bear good fruit in your life so that we actually can accomplish our mission. Because the minute we start bearing bad fruit, the minute it starts getting confused, the minute it starts going sour, the game is over. What kind of fruit are you bearing? Where's the love? Where's the joy? Where's the peace? We make a big deal out of this table at Regen because it's this table that kind of recenters us to some things. And taking some bread and drinking the cup, Jesus makes himself present to us, challenges us to bear good fruit. Something happens here. 
piece of bread and grape juice become Jesus to us so that we can have strength and endurance for the journey so that we water the roots of our tree. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he offered it to his disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you, for your bad fruit. Eat this as often as you do in remembrance of me. In the same way also, later on in the supper, he took a cup and when he had offered it to his disciples, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And it's this bread and it's this cup that sealed for us a new kind of living, a living where a living where we have the freedom to bear fruit that is good. Paul says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. That's the purpose of this table. And so we're going to respond to God. We're going to sing. The band's going to come up in a second. We're going to sing. You can come forward, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. The good news about communion is that it takes this, I, this faith, which is just kind of out there and thought bubbles in our heads, it makes it something we can taste and touch and see and smell. If you happen to be giving tonight, you can do so in that basket. We use every dollar to help people know Jesus, and that's about it, which that's pretty exciting, I think. Let me pray. Jesus, we confess that we don't always bear the fruit that you'd have us bear. God, I pray for the person tonight that is trapped under the weight of sin. God, my prayer is that you would help them bear good fruit to resist that that battle between their sinful nature and the spirit and the desires they give, that Lord, even tonight, maybe they would just lean a little bit into the spirit, that in walking with him, they'd be granted just a little bit of freedom for the fight. I pray, God, for the person who has only done, used this sermon to think about somebody else in their life and not themselves. Father, I pray that they would be able to hear with fresh ears that you're inviting them to be different. Father, forgive us for the ways that we make your son domestic and safe. Help him to be big to us again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The table is open.
just this week, my prayer for you is that the Lord would have his way. And that in that, you would know this Jesus who is big and wants to walk with you, that knows everything about you and yet loves you just the same. Excited to have you back next week. We'll be right here at six. We're, we're a new church, which means that we do some setup, we do some teardown, you'll see some stuff moving around. Some people think that they should be helpful, which I think is very nice of them, but I don't like any helpfulness before 710. All right, so we'll see you next week. Hang around.